Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Laura Harrison, a senior lecturer in history at the University of the West of England, Bristol, and a historian of modern Britain. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all to this evening's event, Diane Abbott, A Political Life, on behalf of the history community here at UE Bristol. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by Diane Abbott, Member of Parliament for Hackney North and Stoke Newington since 1987, and the authors of her biography, Robin Bunce and Samara Linton. Diane Abbott, the authorised biography, draws on original interviews with Diane herself, her friends, her colleagues, and her political opponents, as well as extensive archival research from the Black Cultural Archives in London to the whole city, at the Hull History Centre in Yorkshire. The biography traces Diane's path from her upbringing in North London, onto Cambridge University, through roles in the civil service and the media, and from local politics into the heart of Westminster. Before I formally introduce and hand over to our speakers today, there are just a couple of housekeeping bits and pieces to cover. The format for this evening's event will be a 40-minute uh, discussion between our speakers, followed by a question and answer session, and the event will close at 6pm. You are very welcome to submit questions for our speakers throughout the event using the Q&A box, and the Q&A session will then begin at about 20 to 6. To submit the questions and to see other submitted questions, you will need to be viewing the event in a standard window and not full screen. Please also be aware that questions will only be published when the Q&A section of the event begins, and your question may not appear straight away as all questions will be moderated by the university events team and about five questions or so will be displayed on screen at any one time. You can, though, like a question to boost it further up the list. The event is being recorded this evening and should hopefully uh, be online within the next few days. Um, the University Online Media Library also includes lectures from previous um, events held at the university. So if you are interested in catching up on some of the other lectures and events that have been happening over the last few months here at UE Bristol, um, you can catch up there. So to introduce our speakers this evening, we are joined today by Diane Abbott, Robin Bunce and Samara Linton. Diane Abbott made history when, on the night Margaret Thatcher secured a third general election victory in June 1987, she became the first black woman to be elected to Parliament as MP for Hackney North and Stoke Newington. She entered the House of Commons at a time when there were no black MPs in Parliament and when fewer than 5% of MPs were women. From the outset of her career, Diane has championed global justice human rights, peace and security issues, both at home and abroad. She's been a vocal campaigner around race relations, transparency and justice around policing, surveillance, stop and search, and detainment without trial. She made history again as the first black woman to run for Labour Party leader, the first black person to shadow one of the great offices of state and to represent their party at Prime Minister's questions. She is the longest serving Black Member of Parliament and founder of the London Schools and Black Child Initiative, which aims to raise educational achievement levels among Black children. Robin Bunce is a historian based at Homerton College, University of Cambridge. He specialises in the history of ideas, particularly the recent history of Black radicalism in Britain. In 2014, together with Paul Field, he published the biography of activist and journalist Darkus Howe, which contained the first published history of the British Black Power Movement. He has also written on issues of politics and popular culture for The Guardian, The Independent and The New Statesman. Samara Linton is an award-winning writer and researcher whose work focuses primarily on health, race, gender and society. She co-edited the Africa All-Party Parliamentary Group's commissioned report, Lessons from Ebola Affected Communities in 2016, 
and The Colour of Madness, exploring black and Asian minority ethnic mental health in the UK in 2018. Samara has worked as a junior doctor before joining the BBC in 2019. So on behalf of the UE History community, it is my great pleasure to welcome Diane Abbott, Robin Bunce and Samara Linton. Good evening. Good evening, hello. Well, I'm really excited to be here this evening. Um, and I've loved working with Robin and Diane. Thank you so much for the introduction earlier. Um, yeah, today, Robin and I have got a bunch of questions lined up for Diane. It's been a real pleasure working with her over the last couple of years now um, to put together this really detailed, researched, um, never before seen uh, portrait of her life. So I'm just going to let Robin say a few words and then we'll kick off with the questions. I just want to say thank you enormously to everyone at UE for organising this, particularly to my dear friend Sarah Ward, who suggested this event in the first place. Um, and yeah, I hope we're going to say something insightful and interesting tonight. Great. So, Diane, how about we just start with the basics? What was it like having your biography written for the first time? It was extraordinary, um, partly because you guys um, did all this detailed research into people and things I'd actually forgotten. Um, but also it made me look back over 30 odd years and realize how tough it was at the beginning. Mm, mm. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. One of the real joys of the research was was kind of diving into the archives and finding stuff that that almost nobody had seen for, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And in some cases, I remember finding your UCAS application. Oh, it was probably not called UCAS in those days. ACA, I think it was called in those days. But your application to university. And that was, you know, that was a wonderful moment of um, coming across something which was, you know, not quite covered, well, covered in kind of metaphorical dust and had been undisturbed for ages and ages and ages. Um, I thought I'd start really very at the, at the very beginning um, and ask you a question about your childhood. Because one of the things that struck me when I was writing the first chapter of, your, of, of the book um, was that it was almost impossible for you as a young black woman to escape politics. Um, your childhood home was less than a mile from um, the kind of epicentre of the Notting Hill race riots of 1958. Um, in 1968, um, Enoch Powell made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech. And what I hadn't realized before kind of look, reviewing this, the talk again was the way he targeted young black people, um, the way that he, he made young black people, the, the children of immigrants, second generation immigrants, he made them the kind of the, the, the bad guy in his speech. So I was wondering, I mean, given, you know, all of this politics that was surrounding you, at what point did you, or what point do you remember kind of first thinking about politics? Um, yeah, at what point did you become aware of it? When, when did you start thinking about politics? When I was at primary school, from ages five to 11, every morning my mother would get me ready for school. And part of that process was me standing in front of the dressing table mirror in her bedroom and my mother combing out my hair and plaiting it and tying in these freshly ironed ribbons. And every morning this took place with the eight o'clock news in the background. Um, and I can remember as a little girl, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, looking in the mirror, watching my mother plait my hair, listening to the eight o'clock news and thinking to myself, if I was prime minister, I would do this. If I was secretary general of the United Nations, I would do the other. As this little girl with her plaits, still at primary school, I already saw myself as a political actor. Hmm. Hmm. That's really, yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, you went on to Cambridge to study history and I thought it would be interesting, especially because so many of our listeners are also undergraduates at university at the moment, studying various things. If you could talk us a little bit through your time at Cambridge um, in terms of, you know, the highlights of your time there, the challenges you faced, and I guess what, how, what that um, meant to you in terms of how it shaped the kind of the career that you took afterwards. 
Well, first of all, nobody in my family that I knew had actually been to university and both my parents left school at 14. My mother stayed on a bit longer as a kind of pupil teacher. So I, in a way, didn't know what to expect of university because there was no history of being at university in my immediate family. And the reason I chose to go to Cambridge was I was a great reader of novels. This was before the internet. So, you know, I spent a lot of time reading. And in my novels, people always went to Oxford and Cambridge. Now, I didn't know that working class black girls weren't supposed to go to Oxford or Cambridge. So I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. So um, I did the Cambridge entrance. In those days, you had to do a completely different exam to apply for Oxford and Cambridge. And you also, if you were doing what they called an art subject, history, English languages, you had to do a Latin paper. And actually, it's the requirements for the Latin paper which kept a lot of state school children out because a lot of state schools didn't do Latin at all. Um, so I got in um, and I remember arriving there and I remember it must have been my first day. And Cambridge, as you know, is a collegiate university and all of the history undergraduates went to one of our history tutors' rooms and sat on the floor um, while she gave us a little talk about history um, at Needham College, Cambridge. And I looked around me and I saw all of these quite transparently upper middle class white girls. And I thought, oh my goodness, Diane, what have you done now? Because nothing had prepared me for the difference, not just in terms of race. I mean, I was at Newnham, which has a, which at that time had about 400 girls. And there was one other mixed race girl who was adopted. There was one other South Asian girl and it was me, one black girl out of 400. Nothing could prepare me, not just for the race thing, but the class thing. Um, and I think I spent my first term in a bit of a daze. Um, and I went home at Christmas, really wondering what I'd done, but I screwed up my courage and I went back, but it was such a gulf and such a difference from growing up as a working class West Indian child. And, you know, that can affect you different ways. How it affected me was I saw the huge gulf between the way my parents and their friends and family lived. Most of my parents, friends and family, they were in the public sector, nursing, or they were factory workers. And the way these girls at Cambridge, their lives. Um, and, you know, I was constantly being shocked. I remember sitting in the hall at Newnham and this girl beside me was talking about her country cottage. And I thought, goodness me, most people I know are lucky if they've got a council flat, let alone a country cottage. But I made friends. I had a good friend called Adam. And he always says he remembers seeing me. He did history as well. And he remembers seeing me in sort of the first week of the first term and thinking how naive I looked. And Adam had this little, I think I was his little project. So what he would do is periodically have little dinner parties and invite me. And he'd serve things like artichokes and asparagus, which of course I'd never seen before. And Adam, in the nicest possible way, would show me how to eat them. And it's only looking back now, over 30 years distance, that I can see that Adam was consciously trying to open up the world of middle-class dinner parties and asparagus to me. So it was an extraordinary leap, as I say, both in class terms and race terms. I think everybody needs a friend who will introduce them to asparagus for the first time. Yeah. I, to this day, I have never eaten an artichoke, so yeah. I, I have yet to find that friend, sadly. One of the things, looking looking at the kind of all of the material that still exists about you at Cambridge, um, one of the things that struck me was that representation was a really big issue in terms of the, the history you were looking at, the, the development of representation as, as a kind of political concept. But it was also a really important thing on campus in that you were there during the, a big fight for student representation, which had kind of started following Paris 68. And because Cambridge is so slow, everything moves so slowly, it was just kicking in in the early 70s. So there's all the stuff about representation. Then when you leave, um, you would also, by the time you left Cambridge, been part of um, at least two feminist groups run, run by white women. 
you were elected as a student representative at Cambridge. Then you joined uh, the National Council for Civil Liberties for 18 months or so. And at the same time, you were part of OWAD, the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent. So by the time you're, I don't know, 22 or 23, you have a huge amount of kind of political experience under your belt and a huge amount of political thinking. Um, partly done at Cambridge, partly, you know, done, uh, done before that. So I was wondering, how did these early experiences of OAD, the National Council of Civil Liberties, Cambridge, how did they kind of shape your politics as a young woman? Those early experiences did shape my politics. And I was very concerned about representation. Um, and I was a feminist. Um, almost from the beginning, I used to read um, the the Spare Rib, which was the feminist magazine of the time. That was my sort of a link to the world of organised feminism. But I had a tiny bit of scepticism about white-led feminism at the time. I remember when I was still living at home, um, I found through Spare Rib, I think, my closest women's group. And I started going along. Um, I was still, I think, in the sixth form then. So I was by far the youngest person. I was the only black person. So I went along to the women's group every week um, because I knew that's what a feminist should do, go to a women's group. And then one day they were talking about raising money. They're all of them um, slightly older than me. They were housewives and young professionals. Anyway, so we have a discussion about raising money. And one of the women said, oh, why don't we have a stripper, why don't we have a black male stripper? And I kind of froze and I realized that um, I didn't necessarily see the world the same way as them. Didn't pull me off feminism, but it did inject a tiny amount of skepticism <coughs> as, to, as to my life experience was so different from theirs. And also, this was before people were familiar with the idea of intersectionality. And I was living intersectionality, both a feminist and someone that was concerned about black representation. And then, as I think I've, I've said to you before, I, I went up to Cambridge and I joined another woman's group. You know, I wasn't you know, put off my early experience. And then again, I remember you're in somebody's room, we're sitting on the floor and one of the members of the women's group, this is an undergraduate women's group, one of the female undergraduates said, oh, we're going to have a woman from the town. And she said it with considerable emphasis, a woman from the town. So the next week I turned up and there was the poor woman from the town. And it dawned on me what she meant by a woman from the town was a working class woman. And they had this poor working class girl sitting on a chair, every, all the rest of us sitting on the bed or sitting on the floor. And again, I felt that there was a distance between this woman's experience and these over-eager um, undergraduate feminists. So I was very relieved, as you said, to leave Cambridge and get involved in a black women's group, the Organisation of Women in African-Asian Descent. And it was a feminism and women whose life experience actually reflected mine and I felt very glad to be involved with it. Mm. Oh no, fascinating. And one of the things that I really, I found absolutely fascinating about looking at your later career, particularly when you were Shadow Minister for Public Health and then Shadow Minister for International Development and then Home Secretary and, and, Health, and Shadow Health Secretary as well, in all of those roles, when you are developing policy and also with London Schools and the Black Childs, it's really clear to see the kind of influence of OAD and black womanism on the policies you developed later, and um, that you know that you that, that that never left you, as it were. Um, yeah, you're particularly you know uh, around kind of issues of self-organisation and, and involving black parents in London schools of the black child, um, and a kind of female-centred international development policy that you you were pioneering um, during your time shadowing that role. Um, so moving on to the, the early 1980s, from the kind of late 70s into the early 1980s, you were one of a group of, um, of black and Asian radicals in, within the Labour Party who founded an organisation known as Black Sections. 
which was a campaign and for those of those in the in the audience who don't remember it was a campaign to gain black representation at all levels of the labor party um and ultimately the election of black MPs with the hope that black you would also gain black representation in parliament and then in government. Um, black Sections was formed following the 1983 general election, which was a disaster for the Labour Party. And Black Sections went on to become a, a, a highly controversial movement um, in the middle of the 1980s. It was hardly out, it was rarely a day it was not in the headlines in some way or another. Um, obviously, we're here talking about history today. And I'm thinking, what historical lessons do you think Labour should draw from Black Sections and from the experience of the middle of the 1980s? Well, the first thing to say is that one of the things that really shaped a lot of our understanding as black activists in the 80s was the riots in the early 80s, the Brixton riots, but there were also um, other uprisings in Bristol and Liverpool and so on. And there's no question in my mind that the, the activism of the 80s drew a lot of its energy from black people taking to the streets. Um, and it also helped to frame the black sections movement. And it also helped to create the conditions for black people to be elected to parliament. The notion um, that Neil Kinnock or Margaret Thatcher, whoever it was, just said, oh, it'd be nice to have some black MPs is very, very far from the truth. We had to campaign about it. We had to argue for black representation we had to make the case. And I think we had the courage and the impetus to make the case because of the impetus around us, people taking to the streets, and also in parallel across the Atlantic, the black civil rights um, movement. So what do we learn from the black sections movement? Well, the black sections movement was about um, constitutional change in the Labour Party. The Labour Party has always had women's sections and youth sections. We use that to argue for having black sections. And that was because in the 80s, the left used to focus its demands around constitutional change, like mandatory selection and that sort of thing. So we focused our demands for racial justice around constitutional change. But it was never just about representation. It was also about policies and racial justice. Mm. And I think the lesson to learn is that actually, I mean, now we've got the, 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 the young activists in Black Lives Matter, none of this is new. Um, and that we've had some progress, more than 40 black MPs now, when there were none, when we set up the black sections campaign, but there's still a lot more to do. Hmm. And, you know, as you say, the Black Sections was about representation and racial justice within the Labour Party. But would you say that the fight for Black representation was a sole endeavour of the left? Or were there other movements in around the 70s and 80s that you were aware of outside of that party space? The campaign for Black representation was very much one adopted by the left in the Labour movement. There were, of course, Black activists, like Darkest Half, for instance, who had migrated to the UK as adults, who'd grown up in the Caribbean or West Africa and had been involved in the struggle there, the struggle for independence and, and racial justice. But the struggle for black representation in the 80s was very much one taken up by the left. And I think the right in the Labour Party was not an enthusiast. I remember one year we were at a party conference and a lot of us as black sections activists, we crowded up to the rostrum and we were making speeches. And one of the members of the NEC, a white member, obviously because they're all white, who was a friend of ours, she said to me that one of her fellow NEC members who was on the platform at conference saw us sort of coming to the front and making our speeches and our demands and so on. And she turned to her colleague on the platform and said, what are these people doing in our party? I think it's easy to forget that the case for black representation wasn't adopted by the party as a whole straight away. Mm. And you've now been a Labour MP for 33 years. Um, in your opinion, how has Labour's relationship with black politics changed over the years? Well, it's not changed as much as it should have done. 
Under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, actually, we've seen many more um, MPs of colour. But for the first 20 years, there was just me. Um, I think it was just me for the first 10 years. And then there was one other. First of all, there was Una King, and then there was Dawn Butler. So it hasn't changed as much as it should have done. And I think one of the problems the Labour Party's had is although in many constituencies, not just in London, but in the Midlands and the North and so on, it was very dependent on Black and Asian votes. It tended to want to relate to communities through so-called community leaders and patronage. And we're still in a process where the party is understanding that it has to empower people of colour, not just relate to them through um, through so-called community leaders. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the real joys of um, writing this book was watching the black sections debates um, year after year, because there's a very high level of debate amongst the black activists. Um, the, the debate from the leadership is 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 radically incoherent. Um, Neil Kinnock can barely, you know, well, he can string sentences together, but you know, there's a there are huge logical inconsistencies in what he says. And it strikes me that if you're in a position of power, as Kinnock was, he didn't really need to make a coherent argument. You know, he was the boss and he could just say no. Um, but yeah, but the black sections debates are, are absolutely fascinating in terms of the high level of, of, of the kind of the arguments that you're making. And I look, yeah, sadly, these things are not available on YouTube at the moment. But yes, but your your intervention in the 1984 conference is one that really stands out, not least because you managed to make Neil Kinnock laugh. He was sitting very, very po-faced, um, looking very judicious, I should say, um, throughout most of the debate. And then you you made a joke about militant tendency and he actually, he really, he really started laughing. Um, so... Obviously, we're here to kind of talk about history today. And one of the things um, that stood out to me writing the book was that um, you have a tendency in your public statements to be ahead of the curve. Um, I don't know, maybe you can see like 15 minutes into the future or something. And the one example of this that really stood out to me in recent years um, was in 2017 on the day that Theresa May called this snap election. Um, everybody, all of the commentators were talking about 1983 and how Labour was going to be wiped out in 2017. Whereas you appeared on television that evening in Channel 4 News, and you said the historical parallel that occurred to you was February 1974. And as it turned out, seven, uh, February 1974 was a much better historical comparison, a much better historical analogy than 1983, which turned out to be completely, you know, the, the completely wrong way to look at it. Um, so that was one example um, that, um, that stood out to me. Um, another really interesting example, and I'm kind of rolling two questions into one here, so forgive me for that, was in 2010, um, when you were running to be party leader, one of the things that you said was um, that you, you said that the Blair years, the new Labour years had been, um, I think the phrase you used was, it was a, an era of fake populism, or there was a fake populist element to it. And again, it strikes me that, um, I mean, these days, you can't open a newspaper without coming across the word populist in one shape, way, shape or form. But again, you were there, you, you were able to see this trend in its kind of, you know, in its very early phases, as it were. So I guess my first question on this issue is, is about being, a, being somebody who understands history and being somebody who, who you know, studied history at Cambridge. How is that? How is that historical knowledge, or that historical experience, or that historical approach? Um, how has that informed your politics? Um, you know, in in your career in Parliament. Well, um, history's actually has always informed my politics. I remember when I decided I was going to run for Hackney North. One of the first things I did, um, I was living in Paddington at that time. I was a councillor there, but I came to Hackney. I went to the reference library and I started to do some research on the constituency and um, past members of parliament. And so my politics has always been grounded in my understanding of history and to, to go forward a little bit from actually contesting the selection. I always remember on the, the night when I did my, um, they had the selection conference in Hackney North, which I had in the town hall. And there were um, four of us, 
There was Ernie Roberts, who's a sitting member of parliament. There was Hilda Keane, who's the leader of the council. And there was myself, and there was a, a, another trade unionist. Anyway, we're in the town hall. Um, party members were all crowded into the council chamber. We all had to go in one by one and give a speech. And I remember in between speeches, I was beside myself with nerves. And so what I did is I started walking around the corridors of the town hall. And because the meeting was being held in the council chamber, outside the council chamber, in the corridors, were all these old photographs of past mayors of Hackney. And a lot of them actually were clearly people who were migrants, Jewish migrants, a lot of them. And um, as I walked up and down the corridor and these sort of photographs were looking down at me, I felt as if these Jewish migrants from years ago were whispering to me. And what they were whispering to me is that we came to Hackney, we made it, and you will make it too. And I've always had a very strong sense of history and the historical basis for what I'm doing. And that evening as well at the selection conference in my speech, which actually won me the selection as the member of Parliament Family North, um, one of the things that struck me reading about Hackney is that it had been transformed. It had been a constituency which was largely Irish and Jewish, and it now had a very large black population. And in my speech, I said to the party members, who, I should say, were not expected to vote for me, and the speech did make the difference. I said to them, you know, um, Hackney has changed in recent years. Um, the demographic has changed. And this evening, the Hackney North Labour Party is facing up to history and how things have changed. And you can't, you can run from the historical change in the constituency, but you can't hide from them. So history is very important to me. I suppose I owe it to my history tutors at Newnham. <laughs> it's, speaking of somebody who teaches at Cambridge, it's always nice when people, you know, <laughs> when people, yeah, when people um, acknowledge a, a little debt to, to history teaching at Cambridge. Um, on the, on the kind of second half of the question about populism, I mean, it strikes me that one of the things that's going on during the black sections debates is that black members of the Labour Party are, in a, in a sense, writing a history of the Labour Party. And they're taking it all the way back to the foundation of the party and the, the constitution and then forward to the Wilson and Callaghan years. And one of the kind of criticisms of Wilson and Callaghan that comes from black sections is that they, they stopped thinking about immigration as a human rights issue and they started thinking about immigration as an electoral an electoral issue you know how many votes can they can they garner by t taking a, a tough line quote unquote on immigration um going forward i mean it seems to me that one of the continuities between new labor and wilson and callahan was that there was a sense in which they were willing to play a populist card when it comes to immigration so can you i mean do you see any any continuities between the the what you described as the fake populism of new labor and the populist moment that we appear to be living in now that the kind of populist moment of brexit perhaps when it comes to race and migration on the one hand i'm very proud of the record of individual labor party activists trade union activists fighting racism, campaigning against anti-Semitism, you know, the big battles at Cable Street and so on. But the truth is that too often Labour governments have caved into a kind of phony populism on migration. I mean, we've talked a lot in recent times about Windrush and some of the key pieces of legislation which enabled the Windrush discrimination against um, some immigrants to happen were passed by uh, Theresa May. I have to say I voted against them, but yeah, some of the key pieces of legislation were passed by Theresa May. But there were key pieces passed by Labour government also. The legislation which meant that if you're an immigrant and you went into hospital, they were entitled to ask you to show your papers and your passport. That was passed when Alan Johnson, the Labour Health Secretary, was Health Secretary. And 
the, the Labour Party, whether it's Callaghan, whether it's Blair, whether it's um, whether it's even some of the things that Miliband said, had always dressed up conceding to writer-centred views on migration, the views that see migration as a threat and a problem. They've always dressed it up by a type of phony populism, but it is phony populism. But it's been a problem the Labour movement has had for as long as there's been an organised labour movement. The notion that immigrants, for instance, drive down wages, that goes back to the 19th century. Um, and it's unfortunate that instead of offering leadership on race and migration, quite often Labour governments have played this phony populist card. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And I think it's quite hard to talk about you know, the current political climate without also considering the role of the media um, in terms of mainstream media, but also kind of the more, um, I guess, accessible forms of media for many of us, like social media. And, you know, you worked for a bit as a journalist and you've worked in media. You've always had a quite a central role in um, blog media, TV, radio. I think it'd be interesting to know what you feel the relationship between kind of big broadcast mainstream media and party politics should be. Well, one of the things that strikes me about the media, because I worked in television before I became an MP. I mean, I was at Cambridge. I came down from Cambridge. I was a, a career civil servant in the Home Office, what they called then, an, an administrative trainee, a graduate trainee. Had a period with the organisation Liberty. And then I worked in the media. Um, and one thing that struck me was almost 30 years after I had worked in television, I could walk into television newsrooms and there was still hardly any black or brown people there. It's a few more, I think, in recent years, but it was quite extraordinary. You're talking about television newsrooms and actually newspaper newsrooms that are recruiting in the middle of one of the most diverse cities in this country. And the very small numbers of black and brown people they feel able to employ. Um, and the relationship between the media and politics on the issue of race is like a lot of things between the media and politics. It's quite symbiotic. Um, the, on the one hand, um, the media picks up its issues from the mainstream newspapers. The mainstream newspapers, particularly the right of centre papers, are often peddling some quite negative tropes around migrants. And then politicians pick their lines up from that. So it's a wholly circular process. Negative tropes in the newspapers, the television reflecting that, and politicians reflecting what's in the media and what's in the newspapers. And because there are so few people of colour employed in the media, up until very recent times, um, it's very hard to intervene in this kind of circular argument. Mm, mm. No, absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting. I think that is also true kind of outside of issues of race and immigration as well. I'm just thinking about um, uh, the independent group. Sorry, I'd forgotten their name. <laughs> the independent group seemed to be born out of a conversation between journalists and politicians, where the politicians were saying what we need is a strong centre party. And, and then journalists were reflecting that back at the politicians and on both sides they seem to believe their own kind of hype as it were and as we know the independent group um, died of death very very quickly um one thing that i i was i was um believe it or not i i've um, since finishing writing um, the book i have been paying very little attention to politics um I, I kind of have taken a break from it which is the first time in my adult life um but i i did dip into it the other day and one of the things that I spotted was um, that the Labour front bench were making a very strong case against outsourcing. Um, the reason I mention this in this context is that um, going back again to your run as party leader in 2010, and I was looking, I was reading through your various statements and, and your, you wrote a kind of a mini manifesto. Um, and one of the things that you were, really came out strongly against was outsourcing and the kind of creeping privatisation of the public sector. Um, are you, does it... 
you know, do you, um, did it surprise you that your particular take on issues such as outsourcing, issues such as the Iraq war, issues such as the shortcomings of the Blair and Brown governments, did it surprise you how quickly your point of view became kind of mainstream within the Labour Party after you um, initiated your run to be party leader? It was remarkable how things that were considered quite radical when I was saying them in 2010 as a prospective party mm. leader became completely mainstream. I mean, it's extraordinary that it was a Tory leader that brought in same-sex marriage. And I can remember mm. making the case for LGBT rights 30 years ago, and even in the Labour Party, it was considered highly left-wing and controversial. But let me just say something about outsourcing, which is that it, it speaks to the extent to which my politics is shaped by who I am and what I've grown up with. Who were the people who had their jobs outsourced? Very often, it was black women workers working as care assistants and nursing assistants. Women who, when I was a child, were permanently employed, had pride in their jobs, had um, sick pay and had pensions. And the whole outsourcing mania um, deprive these women of security, of stability, of pensions, and that pride and identity with their institutions. And it's because I felt strongly about the kinds of people and the kinds of jobs that were being outsourced that it was a big thing for me. And as you say, um, the, the party as a whole was caught up with me. Excellent. I think that brings our, our, our bit of the conversation to an end. And at this point, we become ciphers for the audience. We're going to ask you questions submitted by the audience. Samara, have you had a chance to have a look? I have, I'm, I'm yeah. afraid to say I've, I haven't. Yeah, I'm taking a look at one now. This, I think most of them are for you, Diane, so I hope you're ready. <laughs> um, one that's quite popular getting a lot of likes is, how important do you think the Stephen Lawrence inquiry was in changing public opinion, um, I'm presuming around race and um, racial justice? Um, I think the Stephen Lawrence inquiry was important. I got involved in the Stephen Lawrence campaign quite early on. Because, um, I knew some of the activists down in Lewisham who were trying to support um, the Lawrence family. And at one point, they were really struggling and a friend suggested that I could help them because they were struggling financially. And... Um, uh, the, the Stephen Lawrence's dad, um, he was a painter decorator and I just bought a new house in Hackney and he came and he tiled my bathroom. And that was my small contribution to keeping the Stephen Lawrence's family um, <laughs> going. But also I was, I was involved more seriously than that. And I was the first person in parliament to make a speech about the Stephen Lawrence campaign. Um, I think it was important, but the sad thing is that there hasn't been the progress that you might expect, whether it's on the numbers of black and brown people in the police force, particularly at senior levels, whether it's about issues of stop and search. Um, I mean, currently, black people are disproportionately likely to be stopped and searched, disproportionately likely to be handcuffed. Even under the new COVID legislation, we're disproportionately likely to be fined. So also, the Lawrence, Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the first inquiry did make a difference because you had a judge, a very establishment judge, talking about institutional racism. And when mm. an establishment judge said that, people looked up and listened. When they hadn't listened, when people like myself and Paul Button have been saying for years, it did make a difference. But we haven't seen the progress that we should have done. Mm. I, th I think um, on the issue of institutional racism, it is so interesting from a historical point of view to see this phrase it come out of the most radical voices of the black power movement in America in the late 1960s. And then, to, you know, and then eventually... Uh, a few decades later being you know uttered by as you say a very establishment high court judge and i think you know it's, it's absolutely fascinating and a testament to the work of black radicals and black activists um you know who who got this this very radical term mainstreamed in in, in a historically quite short period of time um, the next question, and this is, I'm just choosing this simply because um, it's the most popular question on my little app here. Um, and I, I have heard you answer this before, Diane, and so I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. But anyway, there, there are some people here who want to hear it. Um, 
what does the future hold for you now you've returned to the back benches? That's the first half. And the second half of the question is, um, would you return to the front bench if that was requested? Well, you know, of course I would return to the front bench. I'm here to serve. I always remember, um, some of you will remember John Smith, who's leader of the, the Labour Party, and unfortunately he, he died, he had a heart attack. But the last speech he made, literally the last speech he made the night before he died, he his kind of closing lines were, the chance to serve is all we ask. And that's what I would say, the chance mm. to serve is all I ask. Um, do you know, I enjoyed being a backbencher. Um, I was a backbencher for 20 odd years. Um, I enjoyed being able to speak out of things that I cared about. I enjoyed being able to speak up for my constituents. I enjoyed being able to take a different position for my own front bench. And I did a little bit of media at the time. I did uh, some time on a programme called This Week. So I enjoyed being a backbencher and I'm looking forward to being a backbencher again. There's an enormous amount you can do as a backbencher. There's an enormous amount you can do to bring about change and I'm embracing that. Um, another question here is from Joseph. Uh, how long do you think it will be before we have a black prime minister? Well, you know, I don't want to say. Um, I can remember hearing Mrs. Thatcher in the late 70s and she was asked, you know, when will we have a woman prime minister? And she said, oh, it'll be a long, long time. And then she became leader of a party the next year. So it's, it's a difficult thing to make prophecies of. You know, at one point, to be honest with you, I thought Chakramuna might be a black prime minister, but he made some very foolish decisions. Um, uh, one of his most foolish decisions is to actually leave the party and get involved with this new party, which, as Robin mentioned, just crashed and burned. But you just don't know. We've had some really brilliant young women come in, actually, uh, last year. And who's to say um, whether one of them may become the first black Labour prime minister? People forget that David Cameron had only been in Parliament five years before he became leader of the Tory party. So anything is possible. Mm. Mm. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I, I was just thinking I'd forgotten a huge amount about David Cameron. <laughs> Although I, <laughs> he, actually very easy to forget in, in, the, in the broad sweep of, broad sweep of history. Now, this is a question which is sent in um, by the parent of a seven-year-old boy on that seven-year-old's um, behalf. Uh, okay, so um, Diane, what was your favourite subject at school um, when you were seven? So that is the question, and it's a question from Rashid. Rashid. My favourite subject at school when I was seven was writing stories. I always loved writing stories, and uh, a love of story reading and story writing has been very important for me through life. I love that. You I, wanted I, to I, I can, didn't you? <laughs> say again, sorry? What no, I'm sorry, Diane, you wanted to be a writer at one point, an author at one point, I remember that. Yes, well. I wanted to be an author and I haven't given up on that. Um, I, could, I remember when I went for my um, interview at Newnham, uh, you know, as part of the interview process to get a place. And I went for an interview with my tutor, a woman called Gillian Sutherland, actually. And uh, it was in her study. And to my astonishment, her study was lined with books. And there were actual books that she had written. And I was really impressed with that. And I remain um, excited about the idea of uh, writing books with, and having my name on the spine. <laughs> um, and I can I can testify to the fact that Diane, you are very influenced by literature. Um, I remember being around your house and looking at your bookshelves, and I think there was an entire room in your house, or was an entire room in your house, um, devoted to novels by black female writers. Um, I think I yeah. remember seeing uh, Octavia Butler represented there. I'm a big devotee of science fiction, so I, I you know I, I adore Octavia Butler's work. Um, now this is a question from Sadie, um, and um, a very important question indeed. How how do you um, think black feminism, um, inf uh, sorry, reading glasses problem. Um, how do you uh, how do you think black feminism influenced um, British politics as we know it today? Um, has it yes? Yeah, so um, has it had a positive impact on how we was how we perceive um, BAME females in politics? Is the question. 
I think feminism has influenced politics um, um, and influenced it for the better. And I think black feminism has influenced feminism. Um, I, you know, the, the great thing about the Organization of Women and African and Asian Descent was it was about fashioning a black feminism, a womanism, I think, um, Alice Walker used to call it. And as I say, I think feminism is, is influenced politics. I mean, when I first became an MP, there were a small number of women MPs and um, women were really supposed to stick to women's subjects like childcare or even education. Mm. Um, the fact that now we have women as chancellor, as shadow chancellor, you know, doing all the great offices of state, is an extraordinary transformation. And also the fact that issues which were seen as women's issues 30 years ago, nurseries, childcare, um, equality for women, have become completely mainstream. This is how feminism has helped, has helped to shape British politics and black women and womanism has helped to shape feminism. Um, another question that's popped up and I think is relevant, um, you know, we talk about education. Do you feel that the education system is fit for purpose when considering black history, um, building entrepreneurs of the future? And that's a question from James. Well, I mean, uh, the British education system has problems. One of the problems is the huge achievement gap between working class children and the rest and between black and minority ethnic children and the rest, particularly black boys. I mean, it's been one of my concerns for years. That's why I set up London Schools and the Black Child, the, the institutional racism in the education system. Um, in terms of black history. Um, I mean, I was at school, I went to a grammar school, I went to Cambridge University, and from beginning to end, I didn't have the opportunity to study black history. The only type of black history I was able to study was I did a, 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 a paper on American, on the American South and Reconstruction was a special paper. It was um, taught by a uh, Professor Robert Fogel. Um, but my mainstream curricula, you couldn't study any black history at all. Um, I mean, things are a little bit better. There's a lot more to do. How many children learn about the tremendous contribution of people from Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean to fighting in the First World War and the Second World War? I mean, how many people really understand the relationship between colonialism and slavery and the British economy. I mean, when they pulled down the statue in Bristol of uh, Colston, the slave trader, I mean, everyone complained about it, including, sadly, the leader of my own party. But um, the, I heard more discussion about the role of slavery in, in, in the, the mm. British economy than I had um, up until then. So actually, that piece of direct action achieved its, its aim. So there is a lot more that could be in the curriculum about um, black history and the, the black contribution to British history, yeah, because black history is British history. Mm, mm. I was very surprised at the response to the tearing down of the statue of Colson. I thought it was an excellent example of what David Cameron called the big society. You know, why wait for government to do this when you can do it yourself, as it were? So I was very surprised that the Conservatives came out against that. Um, I need to apologise to Mason. I read out one of your questions without naming you, but I'm going to read out another one. Um, and um, this, yes, yeah, so this is from Mason. Um, it's, it reads, congratulations on an amazing career. What is your proudest achievement? Um, and what is your biggest regret? So there we are, proudest achievement, biggest regret. My biggest regret is Labour losing the general election last year. Um, obviously, I'm a, a Labour MP and I'm a Labour partisan and I would have wanted us to um, win that election. But also, I mean, I, I, I think this country's never needed a, needed a Labour government more. We're in the middle of a coronavirus um, crisis, pandemic. And I don't think even his best friend would say that um, Boris Johnson is handling it very well. And my proudest achievement is that there are so many more black women in Parliament now. From being the only one out of 650, 33 mm -hmm. years ago, there are now dozens. And I'm very proud of that. And they're, and they're all amazing in their different ways. Mm. Um, not another question here from Tom Leslie. The question asks, in your childhood, 
Do you remember especially admiring one single political figure? Or did you find it challenging to relate to politicians of that era? Well, I was generally interested in the civil rights movement. That was a big thing when I was a child. And even though my parents weren't sort of political obsessives, you couldn't miss it, you know, on the news and so on. And I always remember, I think it was 19... It would have been the 19, it was the 1960s Olympics. And there were three black sprinters, three black American sprinters. And they won. First, they won gold, silver, and bronze. And they stood on the rostrum at the Olympics. And they all did a black power salute. Never forgotten that. It was really seismic. And that made an impression on me. That and the general civil rights movement. Mm, mm. Oh, no, very interesting. Um, this is a question from T. Sayal, um, and the question reads, as we're expected to be very different in corporate settings, how did you manage to maintain your authenticity and your cultural identity um, in your journey to the top? Well, I'm not sure I'm at the top, but, um, <laughs> well, you, well, it all depends what you mean by being authentic. What's authentic to me is trying to be as well turned out as I can, because generally speaking, black women like to look sharp. Um, so that to me is being authentic, but I've been in contexts, I've been in left organizations where they felt uncomfortable with a black woman who was smartly dressed. That wasn't their idea of a black person. Black people are supposed to be victims. Um, but I've always tried to be authentic. And if that means, you know, high heels and a smart frog, that's my authenticity. Brilliant. Um, I'm just really aware of time. So I'm just going to pick the questions that are getting the most votes. I'm really, really sorry if I don't get through everybody's questions. So if you want your question answered, vote for it. Um, the next top question says, do you see yourself being an MP for the foreseeable future? Or are there other aspects of political life that you can see yourself getting involved in? No, it's a privilege to be a member of parliament. A friend of mine always says that if you're working class and you become an MP, it's the job your parents always wanted for you. Clean, indoor work, no heavy lifting. It's a privilege to be an MP, and I see myself doing it for the foreseeable future. This is a question from Bex. What advice would you give to any other woman and woman of colour who would like to get involved in politics? Well, I think it's really important to realise that you've got to believe in something. It's no good becoming uh, thinking that you want to become an MP because you want to wear a nice suit and go on news night. You have to believe in something. Now, I've always believed in issues around racial justice and um, and uh, black rights and women's rights and so on. But you might the environment might be your passion. Foreign affairs might be your passion. But you've got to believe in something because if you don't believe in something, you will not have the resilience to survive the um, angst and the difficulties and the pressures and the attacks that you will come under. And I would also say this, some people think being in politics is just about being an MP, but what you also need in politics is people who can do the organising, who can do the comms, who can be behind the scenes, who can make sure people actually come out to vote. So there's all sorts of ways of making a difference politically. But first of all, you have to believe in something not just want the status. And then you need to look at the range of roles there are for people in politics and decide which one you want. I was just thinking, it's such a shame that nobody gave that advice to Boris Johnson, the advice that you need to <laughs> genuinely believe in something. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's not too late. Perhaps you could give that advice to him yourself. I could. So have we got time for another question or are we, I'm, I'm looking for one. We'll one, one more question. One more question. Okay, so I'm simply going to read the one which has got the most likes. Um, and it, it, so, from an anonymous, um, um, an, an anonymous um, source. Sorry, that sounds more formal than it really is. Black transgender people experience some of the worst discrimination in our country and worldwide. How do you think we should fight for such in, against such injustice? Well, I think that it's 
really important to stand up for the rights of black trans transgender people. Um, the amount of deaths that happen to them. And yet they've been at the forefront of many LGBT struggles. So I think we should stand up for their rights, both legally, but also socially, because out of so many vulnerable groups, they are amongst the most vulnerable. Great, so I think that's unfortunately all that we've got time for this evening. Uh, but before I move to sort of formally thank um, Diane, Robin and Samara, uh, just a reminder that this evening's event has been recorded and should be available online within a few days. Um, I'd like to say thank you to everybody for coming along this evening and participating, particularly to some of our students whose names I recognise there uh, for all of your thoughtful questions. Um, a massive thanks to Sarah Ward, um, particularly on behalf of the UE History community for all of her work in um, organising this event and also to the university events team for all of their work in making this event actually possible and happen in the new remote way of working. Um, so just to bring things to a close, um, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our speakers tonight, Diane Abbott, Robin Bunce and Samara Linton for what's been a really fascinating and wide ranging discussion. Um, and just the final plug, uh, you can buy your copy <laughs> of Diane Abbott, the authorised biography um, in all good bookshops from today. <laughs> thank you, everyone.